0: Matthew 2, beginning at verse 19. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. Thank you, Uncle Charles. Let's go ahead and pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, dear Jesus, thank you. So much for the Bible Amen, and its authority over our lives. Um, Father, I just want to thank you for letting sinners like, like me, sinners like us, praise your name in songs like this this morning and learn from the teachings that are in this book. Thank you for the people that are here today. Thank you for Grandpa. As he brings the word this morning, we pray that you would bless him. Every word out of his mouth would touch us, Lord. Help us through this idea, this concept today. Help us to grasp something and learn something from you today through Grandpa. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Charles and Ian. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. I would be remiss if I did not remind us that in these early verses about the life of Jesus, that God the Father, when He sent His Son, He put Him squarely in the middle of a family. That's very interesting. When God had to choose the cocoon for His Son, He chose a family. A family have different appearances. They don't look all the same. But still, family was the cocoon in which God decided to put His Son. I'm going to tell you three stories about family. And then I'm going to tell you what's important about family and what is so strange about family. Okay? All right. Let me tell you three quick stories about family I think will bless you. One of the most important doctors who ever lived was an obstetrician in the United Kingdom named Sir James Simpson. When Sir James died, 100,000 people lined the road to his grave from between the funeral and where he was buried. 100,000 in Edinburgh. He was born in a very poor family. He was the youngest of the family. But somehow they realized that this boy was special. His mother called him the little box of brains. And his brother's. Rather than responding with jealousy, they gathered together and decided that they were going to make sure that this baby boy succeeded. They owned a bake shop, the family did, so they all worked in the bake shop and they took other jobs and they gave their money to make sure always that James had every benefit and every blessing and every opportunity to succeed. He grew up and he was the man who discovered chloroform anesthesia. Imagine that, folks. Before Sir James, they didn't have anesthesia for surgeries. Can you imagine? No wonder, 100,000 people lined his, at the march to his grave. But he was able to do what he did because of his family. When my grandpa Hill returned from World War I, not two, one, my mother's father. When my grandpa Hill returned from World War I in 1919, he was 22 years old. His dream was to go to college. But when he got home, his younger brother had just graduated from high school. So my Grandpa Hill delayed his own education four years and literally put his younger brother through college. Now Grandpa then went on to Moody Bible Institute and then went to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth where at age 30, he finally got to seminary at age 30, he met my grandmother who had just turned 21. See, had my grandfather not taken the time to put his brother through college, he would have missed my grandmother, and that would have had a huge consequence in my life. (laughs) (laughs) One of the great honors I've had through the years, occasionally is to be called on to pick up a famous pastor at the airport and take him to a meeting. And one day I was asked to take Jess Moody, one of our greatest pastors ever in Southern Baptist life. I was asked to go get Jess Moody and give him a ride to the convention where he was speaking. So we're, we're driving along and I was telling him about my family we lived not far away from the airport. And so I said, my family lives right over there. And he'd say, oh, let me tell you a story about family. He said one day we thought he was going to lose his mind. He said he was having trouble with City Hall. They were actually persecuting his church and he thought he was going to lose his mind. He said, I needed to talk to my dad, desperately. He said, so I leaned back in my chair, I picked up my phone, I dialed his number, and then immediately I slammed it down because I suddenly remembered that he'd been dead for years. And he said to me, John, my dad got his hooks down deep in me. Now, I tell those stories to remind you of the importance of family. You have a family. It may not look like the family of Jesus with a father and a mother and children, brothers and sisters. Your family may not look like that. It might be single parents. maybe might be living with grandparents. Family may not look the same, but the importance is family. Now, God put his son in a family. To make a statement about how important family is. Now, what is the purpose of family? Are you ready? Look in my good eye here, everybody. Look in my good eye. What is the purpose of family? The purpose of family is to make sure you have plenty of people in your life that you would never pick Otherwise. Dr. Darrell Eldridge, one of the finest, most gifted staff members I've ever worked with. He was the dean of the School of Religious Education at Southwestern for many years. Very gifted. I was able to persuade him to come serve on staff with me in my right arm right here for several years. He told me one time, he said, Pastor, the greatest enemy to true fellowship in a church is our idea of what true fellowship really is. Well, I had to have him unpack that one. Well, here, let me unpack it for you. Everyone of us in this room would say the model for the church is supposed to be a family. Doesn't the Bible say that we're like brothers and sisters in Christ? Then even use the, the language of use of families to describe the way a church should be? But did I not just say that the purpose of a family is to make sure you have some people in your life you would never pick? You see, our idea of perfect family, our idea of perfect fellowship is that we have a lot of people that we like. We all like the same Sunday school class. We all like the same things. We like the same hobbies. That's our understanding of fellowship. People like us, our age, Our socioeconomic level. But if I understand that the family is God's model for what fellowship is supposed to be, I got to get past what I think fellowship is. And I got to understand you know, that person that I really don't like that's in the church, I have to include them in my group somehow. Those people I disagree with, I need to embrace them too. That's the whole purpose of Romans 14. The whole purpose of Romans 14 where he's talking about people who who are eating meat that's been offered to idols. There's some people who say that's a sin and others who did not. In Romans 14, he never says what you should not or should not do. He never says was a sin, was not a sin. He never says agree. In Romans 14, he says, no, you both disagree, but you treat each other kindly. You receive and accept one another. The whole purpose of Christian fellowship is for you to look around you, when you come to church, if there's a person sitting alone, that's an emergency. You go to that person. The person that nobody else likes, that people avoid at church. They know he's a little bit strange. She's a little bit odd. The last one that you want to talk to, that's the definition of fellowship. So the family, we put the family at the forefront and say, this is our model. Let's just remember what the family is Let's remember how God constitutes it, that God makes sure that we have some family members we just don't like. That's the way it is. Now, now if you think you're doing a pretty good job of fellowship, let me give you the acid test. I've used this all through the years. This is a good, this is a good test. Are you ready? Here we go. When was the last time you served a meal in your house to someone? Who voted in the last presidential election for a different candidate than you did. (laughs) I'm as serious as a yard dog. Ask yourself the question. When was the last time? Trust me folks, I had a college group for five years. I had no problem with that question. I had all kinds in my college group. You need to ask yourself the question. "Is is, Is your understanding of fellowship... People like me, people who know me, people who who do things that I do. All right, enough. Let's go back. Now we're ready for verse 22. Matthew chapter 2, verse 22. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Herod, right at the end of his demonic life, First of all, five days before he died, murdered his heir apparent—the guy everybody thought he was going to become the new king. He killed him, his son, his own son, by the only woman he ever really loved. So when it was all over. There was chaos, and so when it was all done, the kingdom, Herod's kingdom, all of Israel, basically was divided among three of his sons. Far up in the northeast, the Sea of Galilee, and on up that way, out of the way, over here was given to his son Philip, who was the best boy he ever produced, by far. He was quiet, sort of introspective, and he lived up in the northeast, and that section did well. So that was Herod Philip. Galilee, where Jesus grew up, his home, his area, was given to the son named Antipas, who ruled for about 39 or 40 years. Antipas was consumed with his father's lust for women. It is Antipas who had the woman come and dance in front of him. It is Antipas who murdered John the Baptist when John preached against him. It is Antipas who was in Jerusalem when Pontius Pilate was questioning Jesus and found that he was from Galilee and he brought Antipas in and, and they, they decided that you know, neither of them could find anything wrong with Jesus And by the way, on that day, Jesus had nothing to say to the murderer of John the Baptist. But trust me, there's coming a day when Jesus will have a lot to say to the murderer of John the Baptist. But that's Antipas, that's the north. Now, the heart of the kingdom, Israel, Jerusalem, and all that area right around Jerusalem, what we call the major section of Israel, was given to a son named Archelaus. Archelaus shared his father's ferocity. He was vicious. First thing he did, the Jews were about to revolt because the Romans had put in the temple an insignia of Rome, an eagle, the symbol of Rome. They just stuck it up on a wall. And the Jews, they couldn't take it. To them, that was idolatry. So the Jews were about to throw a fit. They were about to have a revolt over that what they thought was idolatry. And so Archelaus, deciding to get ahead of the game, killed 3,000 Jews. That was his first official act. He killed 3,000, warning them, don't worry about the insignia on the wall. The people of southern Israel... Pleaded with Rome for 10 years and finally the Romans got rid of Archelaus. They got rid of Archelaus, did not want any more of the family of Herod. So they got rid of Archelaus and they started sending governors. And governor number six was Pontius Pilate. So Archelaus is the ruler in the southern part of the kingdom. Bethlehem, Jerusalem. And Joseph is afraid to go back. Because he knew what Archelaus' daddy tried to do to the babies. And so he's afraid to go back. So let's look in verse 22 and see what happens. Look in verse 22 again. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now here's where we go. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. It's very interesting. Don't miss this. The Father in heaven did not want His Son on earth to grow up in Jerusalem, the religious capital of Israel. There was corruption. There was sin. There was every kind of problem you can imagine in Jerusalem. And God the Father, we would have said, obviously the Messiah should grow up in Jerusalem. God would have said, no, we're going to send Him off into obscurity, into a place called Galilee. You're talking about a backwoods place. We're going to send Him to Galilee. Always remember That the Father, to protect His Son in holiness, sent Him into obscurity. That's one of the most important things you're going to hear me say this morning. The Father, to help His Son in the area of holiness, sent Him into obscurity. Whatever happened to the reverence that we Christians used to have for the word private? As in private time every day? What happened to us understanding the importance of going into the wilderness to pray? What, when did we quit loving the word closet, the place to retreat to to pray? We need to be reminded that the Father made sure His Son went into obscurity. Moses spent 40 years in a wilderness. Paul stayed in Arabia three years, made the most forgotten part of the life of Paul. I, I just I love to remind people that. Do you remember? God had to send Paul three years away to get his thinking right. John the Baptist grew up in a wilderness. You need to learn to retreat. You will never do much for God if you do not appreciate the word private, if you do not appreciate the word closet, if you do not appreciate the word obscurity. It is in the private place that you are made or broken. It will determine what you do. Now what you do here. Now what you do in public. Your life will be determined by what you do in Galilee. As opposed to Jerusalem. In obscurity. In the wilderness. In the private place with God. Now notice that God gave Jesus the little baby a place to escape persecution. It is okay to dodge abuse if you can do so with integrity. Paul kept going from city to city to city to city. The pilgrims went to Holland and then came to the United States and came to the colonies. The Jews came to New York, especially to Brooklyn. When I was pastor at 2nd, we had a church for Burmese people called the Chin, Terribly Persecuted Christians. They came to this country, and they began to settle in this area, and we started a church for them. Fleeing persecution in religion is part of the warp and woof of the United States story, and we celebrate it. In fact, we are so, so proud of our religious freedom, we even make jokes about it. Now, when I tell you I'm about to tell you a joke, why do I tell you that? Thank you so that you will laugh. Okay. And Brandy has already promised me that she will lead the laughter. Okay. I solicit help. That's how bad a joke teller I am. I had a friend. I have a friend who says his great-great-grandfather came here to flee religious persecution. He stole the bishop's mule. Thank you to all four of you. Okay. One of my favorite cartoons, I love cartoons, my favorite cartoons is the pilgrims on the Mayflower. They're getting ready to land right at Plymouth Rock. Here they come. Two pilgrims standing side by side, and they're looking at the beautiful forest, the Massachusetts forest in front of them. And one of the pilgrims says to the other, I'm coming for religious liberty, but while I'm here, I think I'll dabble in real estate. (laughs) For us in the United States, we love to tell these stories it kind of keeps us from forgetting that, that we are a nation built on people who have fled persecution. I think that we Christians need to remember that. Folks, don't when you get mad about what's happening at the border and you get mad at the immigrants, come in. always remember the Bible commands us as Christians to be kind and gracious to immigrants. The Old Testament immigrants is one of the three special categories. and So we always have to be careful. We have to have laws, I know that, we have to have rules, but always remember as Christians you must always be gracious and kind And gentle in what you say. And remember, every one of us in this room one day had an ancestor who's just like the one that's trying to get across the border in Mexico today. Just like them. Same dreams, same goals, same aspirations. So fortunately, that's the story of our country. But for many, fleeing persecution is not an option. Jesus could not do it. John the Baptist could not do it. James, Paul, Peter, John Huss, William Tyndale, our great Baptist forebear, Conrad Grables. They, they could not run, and therefore they took the full wrath of their detractors. Sometimes there's no place to flee to avoid persecution. Now, why do I say this? All right? I recently told you that we're living in the greatest revival in the history of the world for Christianity. These are the greatest days Christianity has ever. Faced Ever. In our 2,000 year history, we've known nothing. Nothing that compares to the revival in China, Nigeria, South Korea, South America. There's never been anything like that. These are the greatest days in the history of Christianity. Now today, I'm going to flip the coin and tell you the other side. More Christians are being killed now than ever before in the history of the world. At the same time, Greatest revival ever, worst days ever, best, worst. Most of them are in Nigeria, many in North Korea, many in China. But more Christians are being killed now than ever before their faith. At the same time, we're having this great revival. Many of them have no place to go. And I, I, I think you ought to occasionally, you need to ask yourself the question, If we do begin to be persecuted in the United States, which we are not persecuted, folks. Don't get off of that boat. We're not persecuted. We have great freedom. But if we ever did get persecuted, where would we go? Answer that question, and you'll you'll begin to try to see. You know, the world is kind of difficult. You're going to go to China. You're going to go to Nigeria. You're going to go to South Korea. So, for some people, they can escape. Some people, they cannot. How do you know? what God's will is for you. How do you know whether or not you ought to buy a Chevy or a Ford? How do you know whether you ought to go to jury or OTC? How do you know whether you should discipline your child or not? How, how do you make those kinds of decisions? How do we come to a place where we can do that? Well, this was Joseph's fourth and final dream in which God told him what to do. This is number four. Remember the first one was, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. Number two was, go down to Egypt, protect this child. Number three, get out of Egypt, come back to Israel. Now this is number four, go live in Galilee. And that succession of dreams raises the question, how do we know God's will? How does God communicate His will to us as individuals? It is one of the most perplexing problems I have at 72 years old. I still won't know God's will for my life. When I had those college students in my house, the thing that bothered them the most, how do I know what career to go into? How do I know what to do? How do I know what to major in? How do I know who to marry? Well, guess what, when you're 72 years old, you're still just as confused about the future. What's next? What do I do now? What should I? Do I keep doing interims? Do, we do a podcast, do those kind of things. How do you find out? How do you find out God's will? At Seventy-two is still just as much a problem as when you're in college. Now there are some who believe that God still speaks to us in dreams. Now, especially that is true among our missionaries who work in Muslim countries. The latest number I saw: eighty percent of Muslims who become Christian do so after they see Jesus in a dream. 80%. Now, I don't necessarily believe God speaks to us in dreams, but I've learned a long time ago that missiology really messes up theology. The study of missions, and as God penetrates darkness, you study that, That really does strange things with all these things you've decided about God and His work. So, my personal feeling is, I don't necessarily believe God speaks through dreams. But when 80% of one of the largest systems in the world, of the converts, see Jesus in a dream, it behooves me to be very humble and say, you know what? Here's the deal. God can say whatever, to whomever, whenever, and however He wants to. I'm going to say it again. That's the best amen you've given me since I've been here. (laughs) Here we go. God can say whatever to whomever, whenever, and however he wants to. Which brings us to the discussion, what about people who say, God told me? What about people who say, God told me this? God said this to me. Now, I am not trying to put God in a box, and I'm not trying to say that that's wrong. I'm not trying to say dreams are wrong. I have my own personal convictions. I'm not saying it's wrong for somebody to say, God told me. I just, I'm just wanting us to walk together now for the next few minutes. I'm not going to be here long. I promised Ruthie I would not preach over 90 minutes this morning, so we're going to keep it to an hour and a half. We're going to call Thank you for laughing, Brandy. Thank you. All right. I'm just uncomfortable with any emphasis on direct individual revelation. Now let me tell you why. It makes me very uncomfortable when anybody says to me, God told me. Or God led me. God directed this. I feel we have to be very careful because anytime you say that, you're putting a momentary feeling that you had on the same level with Scripture. Scripture is the direct revelation. Scripture is God speaking directly to us. We have to be very careful when we say God told me or God led or God said or God did because now we have taken a personal experience and put it on the same language with the Bible. I'm old enough to remember when Baptists never said God told me. I'm 72. I can remember when you would have never heard a pastor Deacon, Sunday school teacher, parent, it doesn't matter. You would have never, missionary, ever heard a Baptist say, God told me. What happened? Charismatics. Charismatics came into our world in about the year 1900, started speaking in tongues, and then. If God can give you different languages, certainly God can give you the English language. God can speak to you, and so the charismatics—they were the first ones to say, "God told me," "God said," "God spoke." You know, God said this to me, and we Baptists—we didn't—we didn't want to be second-class citizens. We don't—we don't be walking around our charismatic friends are saying, "God told me," and "God spoke," and "God." Spoke. We're standing here saying, "Well, God, I love God too." And so we picked up their lingo. We started talking like it. Now, I remember 40 years ago, I preached a sermon very similar to this because it was coming. It was was just beginning, this wave of Baptists beginning to talk like the Charismatics. God told me. God led me. God directed me. And so I preached a sermon very similar to this 40 years ago at First Baptist Church, St. John. I was the pastor at the time of a man that I had known, very successful man. I'd known him when we were teenagers together. I knew him. I got done with a sermon and he was one of those who liked to say God told me, God said this, walked up to me and, and, and kind of got on me for it. I, fortunately, I happened to know his mother, who was one of the godliest human beings I'd ever known. And I just said, Mike, I said, Mike, how many times did you ever hear your mother say God told me? He stopped dead in his tracks and he said, never. I looked at him and I said, and I never heard my mother say it either. Alright, how do I think we determine the will of God? I'm glad you asked. Let's go to James chapter 1, verse 5. Boy, did I not set that up well. James chapter 1, verse 5. Are you ready? Here we go. How do we determine the will of God in any given situation? James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom is the ability to look at life and just make wise decisions. That's what wisdom is. Take the first three letters of wisdom, wise, and you've got it. W-I-S, that and E, wise. It's the ability to look at life and just make decisions and do right. Here's how I think the Scriptures indicate our best way to know the will of God in, in situations. When facing decisions... We need to pray, empty ourselves out before God, earnestly seek His face, and then you just decide. You choose. And one thing we know for sure is you've got to learn how to do this because God never gives all of His will to any of us at one time. God gave Joseph four dreams, not one dream. He didn't tell him everything he was going to do. So whatever we think about the mechanics, whether you believe God speaks to you or not... Whether you believe in dreams, whether you believe like I do that you just ask for wisdom. Whatever you believe about the mechanics, the one thing you have to do is you have to come to the place that you believe you have to keep coming to God over and over and over. You keep coming, and whatever method you think He uses for you, you have to use that. You don't ever get the floodlight. You always get a spotlight. We just live right here. That's how God just helps us do one thing at a time. And it's this cascading, successive, dispensive information That reminds us that God reveals His will little bits at a time. And here's what I've come to here's the conclusion I've come to at age 72 and 56 years in the ministry. What God wants me to do, whatever I'm trying to decide God wants me to do, is not as important as my reaching to the point it doesn't matter what God wants me to do. In other words, should I buy a Ford or a Chevy? My guess is God probably doesn't care that much if you buy a Ford or a Chevy. But still He might. But but you're praying desperately, God should I buy the Ford or the Chevy? That's not the point. The point is you need to get before God and say, now Lord, I'm gonna stay here until I don't care which one I buy. Till my opinion doesn't matter, till I get to zero. When you get to zero, that's when God can fill you with his wisdom. If you're leaning one direction or another, if you're wanting something more than something else, you're almost always going to lean toward God is telling you to do what you want to do. That's why the point is not so much praying about which university should I go to as getting to the point that you say, God, all right, it doesn't matter which one. I had to do this every time I made a major decision whether to leave one church and go to another. Every time. Before I got assurance, before I felt the wisdom of God had been given to me and I made the decision, every time I had to get to where I was okay whether I stayed or left. I had to get to zero and then make a decision. That's, That's the way I think that we respond to the Holy Spirit and as the Holy Spirit is always in us. We're living in His presence. We're loving God. We're enjoying Him. I don't, I don't have to have Jesus give me a special word, I don't have to have some special bulletin. What I'm trying to decide now, decide, but probably it's not as important as I think it is. God's in control, God rules the world. And the point is not really what I do, what car I buy, those kind of... That's really not the point. The point is, am I walking really close to Jesus? And am I really saying to Him, I'm at zero, not my will, but thine be done. This is the point. Not worrying about the decision, what to do, but coming to the place you get to zero. And then when you get to zero and you're okay, you've prayed, you've emptied yourself, you've done everything that you can. You decide. You just choose. And you say, well, pastor, what if I make the wrong decision? Well, if you have emptied yourself out before God, if you have prayed, if, you have, if you've laid yourself out to where you're at zero, Lord, not my will but time be done. And you truly, if you make the wrong decision, then you made an error of the head, not the heart. And an error of the head God can easily change. I say you should have bought a Ford instead of a Chevy. You go buy a Ford and it's a lemon. Well get rid of it and buy a Chevy. You know, you, it's not the end of the world. See? So so you may if the, if if your problem is here, it's a it's an I made a mistake in my brain and it's not here in your heart where you're you want something, you're gonna get it no matter what God says, the Lord the Lord will guide you and He'll help you. He'll coax you. He'll... It's here when you say, I want this. That, that's where we fight up against God. That's where we have trouble when we get into this state. But when we pray, if we can come to where it's zero, now my will but thine be done. James says, if you just ask of God, you just, now, okay, Lord, I got to make a decision. Here I go. I'm going to choose this. Here I go. And you'll leave it with the Lord. Didn't I tell you I was going to fire you up today? Now, you have to decide, you have to decide how the Lord speaks with you. You have to decide how do you feel the mechanics are. I've told you my opinion. My opinion is 75 cents. Get you a refill, it come and go. But you need to at least listen to what I've said. I've always felt this way people all respond to a pastor. You call a pastor, you respect him, you at least have to take his opinion. You have to evaluate, you have to weigh, you have to measure. So take what I've said, go home, and you have to decide. Okay, every head bowed and every eye closed. Well, that's a load for today. That will keep you thinking throughout this bad weather, keep your mind occupied. Well, while Christians are kind of trying to find their way through that message, trying to struggle to find their spot, may I speak to you who do not know Jesus as your Savior? If you're not a Christ follower, if you're not a believer, may I speak to you just a moment? Maybe somebody said something this week, or there was something in the music or in the message that caused you to decide, yes, I want to follow Jesus. If that's the case, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. If this person says what you want to say, then I hope you'll pray it. Give your life to the Lord. Now that the words don't save you, there's no magic in the words. Prayer means nothing if it's not an expression of what we're experiencing on the inside. So you only say the words if you really mean them. This really is really what's coming from your heart. But if you would like to receive Jesus as your Savior, I want to lead you in a prayer. If it says what you want to say, you repeat it silently as I pray it out loud, phrase by phrase. Here it is. Dear Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Come live in my heart. I receive you as the master of my life. Amen.